Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's the Brooklyn Fright Fest Preview Podcast Series 2015. Welcome to another Britflix Fright Fest Preview Podcast. Today we're previewing some kind of hate. And can you please introduce yourselves, guests one and two? This is Adam Egypt Mortimer. I'm the director and co-writer of the film. This is Brian DeLue. I am the co-writer, other co-writer of the film. Fantastic, fantastic. Do you think other, when you say other co, is that redundant? <laughs> or is it Maybe. adds clarity? Maybe it adds clarity. <laughs> right then. Um... So do you want to give us a brief synopsis of Some Kind of Hate? Yeah, so uh, <clears throat> the intention of Some Kind of Hate was to take the kind of 80s supernatural slashers that we loved as kids, like Nightmare on Elm Street and Candyman, and uh, come up with a way to make a uh, absolutely contemporary version of that kind of story and to tell it you know, in, in the style of a... Uh, emotionally intense indie drama. Uh, so that was, that was that was sort of the intention before we even knew what the story was. And uh, and and the story itself is about a a, a kind of a, a metalhead teenager, tightly wound kid who constantly gets bullied. He fights back against the uh, the kids at his school that that bother him, and he winds up getting sent away to a new age reform school in the desert. The same thing starts happening to again with new kids who start to kick his ass. And then a, uh, an entity. Yeah. He summons, he inadvertently summons a dead girl, uh, who was killed there. Well, who died there years before, uh, and she starts picking off his bullies one by one. And it sort of spirals out from there without giving away too much of what happens at the end. Okay, okay. Now, look, if, if a film was equal parts of the various elements that make a film, so we've got, we've got in, in terms of horror, obviously, we've got scares, gore, mystery, psychological, and drama. And if I add into that comedy, um, what would be the makeup of your movie? Like on the pie graph? <laughs> yeah, yeah, give us... I mean, I started off, when I did the first podcast, I said, I said to somebody... 50-50, equal parts, scare and gore, and then I've, I've, it's just expanded because everyone keeps saying, you know, obviously there's different, there are more elements than that, and I was being a bit too 
bit too binary. But yeah, no, just just to give us a basic a rough rough guide as to. Um, I think what, I think what's interesting about it is that it's that the answers in in the structure to the to the story itself because the first uh, first twenty five minutes or or so are entirely a teen drama. So the first twenty five minutes are like intense emotions and uh, and and I've been happy to see that audiences laugh at the funny parts. Um, and then it starts to rapidly shift gears into an all-consuming slasher horror film. Um, so, and, and you can really feel it in the, in the, in the narrative, in, in the style of the film, that it, it evolves from one thing to the other. Yeah, I would say drama, if, if, if I'm picking from those choices, I think drama and gore are probably pretty high on the list. And like Adam was saying, it, it, yeah, it swerves stylistically in a very deliberate way from drama to uh, a supernatural slasher about 25, 30 minutes yeah. in. Yeah. Part of the reason that we, what we did, what we were hoping to pull off is to be in the drama and live with the characters for long enough that you forget you're watching a horror movie so that when the horror starts to happen, it really extra specially kicks your ass. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's one of the things that, um, we're led to believe that you're not allowed to do. We're meant to, we're meant to throw horror in at the beginning, have a rest, and then be in a horror film for the rest of the movie, aren't we? And it's like, it's nice to, to take that time out. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think by the time we were done making, in the final form of the movie, I think we cheated a little bit because during the first 25 minutes, like there are little bits and pieces that are a bit scary and add a bit atmosphere. In the original, the first time we wrote the script, it was, absolutely no nod to being a horror movie whatsoever. And, and, and then I think we found after we made our first edit and, and looked at the film that it, we sort of gave ourselves permission to add a little bit. Of yeah. We layered attention. in some, some atmosphere that wasn't there initially in the first 30 minutes to sort of build the sense of dread, but it still is, it still plays very much like a drama and then very much like a horror movie after, after that point. So when, when and where can people see some kind of hate at Fright Fest this year? So we are going to be playing on Saturday the 29th on the main screen. Here are our exact times and places. We're going to be at the Film 4 screen at 6.15 p.m., the Arrow screen at 8.55 p.m., and the Horror Channel screen at 11.30 p.m. Uh, we're going to be there. I'm going to be there. Brian is going to be there. Our producer, Amanda, is going to be there, and our star, Ronan, is also going to be there. He plays Lincoln in the film. So we're all going to be there at all three screenings, do a Q&A, and uh, get shouted at, or whatever people do at Fright Fest. <laughs> we have not been to Fright Fest before, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited just to see what it's like. I've heard it's a pretty psychotic time. No, no, no. You've got, I mean, your three screens you're going to be, and I think it's roughly 500 people in each one. Yeah, well, that'll be 1,500 upset People who've been dragged through hell and back. <laughs> now it's good I've got the the, the two writers of the of the film as, as well as the director. Because uh, the first question I wanted to ask was, in ter- and, and you've already alluded to sort of the way the evolution of it as a script before it was made into a film. Um, but but what were the hard what was the hardest challenge to resolve in storytelling terms for you? Good question. That's a great question. In storytelling forms. Um, well, I think the initial, the initial challenge, the, the idea of what we were doing was a challenge in and of itself. So it was, how do we take what a slasher movie is, but have characters with depth 
and, and emotional lives, which isn't to say that, you know, Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street has an emotional life, but it's not the story of her emotional life. Exactly. Right. So, so the, the challenge is how can we do a story that, that, that really has to be about a character running around slicing people open? How can we achieve that, uh, while still having developed characters. And I think one of the characters we wanted to develop was Moira, the villain, the slasher herself, this this dead girl who is back for revenge and who has her own backstory and her own agenda and who, frankly, talks quite a lot, which is something that you don't often see in slasher movies. The villain is often this sort of implacable force of evil that it, it doesn't really explain itself which I think can yeah. work quite well in a lot of movies. But we were thinking something much more along the lines of, of Candyman, where he has a specific backstory and he has his own agenda beyond killing people and he, uh, he, he tells you about it, he speaks. So I think part of it was creating this, part of the challenge was creating this villain that we hope is still scary and is still frightening, but who also comes across as uh, a well-rounded character, a character with, with depth, which... Uh, Sierra McCormick, when she plays it, I really think gets that and, and, and does an amazing job of communicating that. And she talks about, in some of the Q&As we've had with her, how that did attract her to the role, was, was this idea of trying to give uh, depth to a character that is not normally uh, afforded that opportunity in the structure of a slasher. Yeah, I think that part of the, the solution to the problem uh, presented itself in that, you know, Michael Myers is scary like you're saying, Brian, precisely because he doesn't have emotions, right? He's just, he's sort of an unstoppable human-like thing. So we went all the way in the opposite direction, and Moira is scary because she has such intense emotions, right? So, like, she's so enraged and so, like, hysterically upset and has so much power, violent power, that can be fueled by that, that that's actually the very thing that makes her scary. And, and part of that was taking the, the way that, that emotions feel to you when you're a teenager, they feel so heightened and so extreme. And we were thinking about, okay, what if you have this villain who is essentially, she's fixed at this age, she's 16, and and she has these like really, really violent emotions that teenagers have, uh, and she experiences the world in those extreme highs and lows that I think a lot of teenagers do. What if you had all that and she could turn that rage and that anger and those extreme emotions into... Uh, a supernatural form of, of, of killing people. She could, she could kind of channel her anger and her rage in these really interesting ways. Um, so that was part of the challenge, I think, was, was sort of creating that character and creating how, how all that was going to work while still hopefully keeping her, uh, scary, frankly. I think, I think with the, um, I think what I noticed watching it was the, was almost like seeing a 35 year evolution of an American teenager in a horror film in some senses. Because, you know, if I think back to sort of my, my stock in trade slasher films, you were getting the kind of blonde blue-eyed, optimistic, let's get loaded, let's have a shag teenager. Whereas mm -hmm. you, you, you've, you've stocked your cast with a very kind of, <laughs> I don't know, self-loathing. <laughs> there is no future. Um, and, and, and it's still the same thing that happens is that when you surround yourself with a peer group that is all the same age... And there is no real adult influence on what they do. Then, like you say, with your with your supernatural character, is everything they're experiencing is the worst in the world ever. Because obviously, for a lot of them, it'll be the first time, and things like that. Well, you know, one of the things that that 
I used to say a lot when we were first casting, when I was talking to everybody involved with the production and the cast and people designing anything, was that it's a slasher movie where the uh, emotional violence is on equal footing with the physical violence. So I, I think, in, 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 you know, that goes to what you're saying about maybe the bleakness of the world and the bleakness of the characters is that, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that it had the overall tone of, uh, it's like a emotional slashing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and whereas rage comes from a feeling of betrayal a lot. So there's a lot of times when people are in the movie are helping somebody and then they sort of turn against them. And uh, we wanted that that feeling of betrayal to be as you know brutal on some level as the actual physical violence that results from it. Yeah, and and I think we also you know in in the the main character uh, Lincoln played by Ronan, the uh, you know he's he's coming from a real negative place to begin with. His his opening scenes are negative. His look and style is negative. He's into aggressive, awesome but aggressive bleak music yeah. and um and so you know so, so you, we're sort of building this world where on the one hand we've got this teenage guy who's living in a world of sort of aesthetic bleakness and then he's up against like a real actual nihilism monster mm-hmm. well look when when you when you got through all those challenges then on the script and you were and you were looking at it on on the page ready for the shoot and obviously for your producers budgets are finite um, mm-hmm. What aspect of the shoot was, or what aspect, what aspect within the script was um, appeared to be the sort of the the big insurmountable challenge, and, and what breaks did you get, or what what did you what did you decide to do that helped you get over that? So uh, there's, a, there's a couple things there that were <laughs> there's a number of challenges. One big <laughs> challenge for production was, um, you know, we have this great concept for how Moira kills people, which is that when she hurts herself. Uh, she hurts both herself and her intended victim, which means that uh, every time she kills somebody, there's this sort of magical, physical cuts appearing out of nowhere on people's bodies. And, you know, being true to a slasher film, we wanted the effects to be as practical and bloody as possible and spray around as much blood and skin as we could. But on the other hand, she's doing something that is completely impossible compared to, say, you know, hitting somebody in the head with an axe. So every single time somebody gets killed in this movie, it was a very specific, very unique problem to solve from the point of view of how to shoot it and how to mix exactly the right amount of practical. Like we wanted to make sure that when you see people bleeding, they're really, you know, it's real fake blood. It's real wounds rubber wounds opening up, but it has to be done in a way that, that's magical. So that took a lot of, that was very difficult. And we brought on an effects team to the project very early on. There was a time in this project when we thought we were going to be doing it for more money. And way back then we had these guys come on as an effects team and we lost a lot of the financing we thought we were going to have, but they, they loved the project and they loved the solutions they'd come up with us. So they stuck around and, and, and I think we really nailed that. I've, I've found that people, respond really positively to the blood and the way that people get killed in this movie. Um, another big challenge was that Brian and I wrote this thing to take place in a Southern California desert. That would be a school that would have a barn and a basement and a greenhouse. And you cannot find all of those things 
in the desert at all. It's crazy. We're None of that both, stuff. We're both from the East Coast, and we didn't realize from the East Coast of the United States. Yeah, the East Coast of the United States. We're, we're, and we didn't realize we've only been out in California for a couple of years. We didn't realize there are no basements. Out yeah, here, there's no. You can't find a basement. <laughs> First of all, there's no basement. Not in the desert, at least. There's no basement. Second of all, this like a glorified idea of what we thought a barn would look like. We could climb up ladder, and there's a thing, and it's not what they look like. And third of all. Greenhouse, the way, if you're lucky to find a greenhouse, it's like a giant piece of saran wrap held up on a scaffolding with like some tomatoes inside. So that wasn't going to be very dynamic. So somehow we were able to build a greenhouse in the middle of the desert at our location. Our production, our production designers completely did themselves on that. When we build the greenhouse, they were able to throw people through windows and smash skulls and everything that needed to happen. We just built that thing. Yeah. The barn was not on our location, but it was it was a short drive away. And the basement, we just we there is a basement in the movie. It's the magic of cinema. Yeah, but that was spectacular that challenges. Was a, that was a warehouse, and it was some you know it was something where we wrote this movie like let's write the lowest budget possible movie we can write so we can get it made because we're you know frustrated not getting our other movies made. And and we even you know it was like oh it's just this one location just this like camp in the desert but yeah it's fine there's a horse and it's like no man like we really. We made it really difficult, but like so many challenges, the result was it looks fucking rad. Like it takes place, you know, we were able to shoot these like wide anamorphic images of being in this desert and all of that isolation and all of that hot, dusty daylight. So it winds up looking different again than the kind of slasher movies that had originally inspired us to make the movie. I'll also say one of the difficulties we didn't anticipate this one because because we couldn't really we like like Adam was saying we we were shooting out in the desert but we were shooting mostly in April and early May uh, when it's not normally particularly hot in this high desert that we were in and we had not one but two extreme heat waves with Santa Ana winds which basically means it was a hundred degrees with thirty to forty mile an hour winds and single digit humidity for about. I don't know, half the days we were doing exteriors? Yeah, it was miserable. So the weather was, like, really, really, really intense. During yeah. the when, you, when you set your movie in the desert, you're punishing yourself. You're already – talk about self-loathing. <laughs> talk about characters <laughs> loathing themselves, all right? Talk to two writers who just write well, a movie. We, we, you know, desert. we picked the time of year when that normally doesn't happen. Yeah. It was a super fluky thing. But, yeah, that, that was challenging. And I would say that the, the final – Big challenge that I want to talk about that Brian broke this a little bit already is the idea of having a slasher character with a lot of dialogue. And so when people first read the script, when we were ready to shoot it, they said, oh, this story is really cool. This could be a good movie. But your slasher talks too much. She should shut up. And we were like, oh, my God. Like, is that true? Like, did we screw this <laughs> up? Like, what? So I, I started doing, um, like, workshops uh, with with actors to run some of these scenes, not even before we even cast the movie, this was early on, right after we were done with the script to see what the scenes would feel like, see what kind of emotional life they would really have, test out the dialogue, test practice directing. And it, it turned out when we did that and I, and I saw what it was like to work with actors that in fact, her having dialogue was really the, the key thing that we loved about the movie. It was the thing mm that with the right actress was working really well and made it interesting and, and, you know, putting a voice, giving a voice to a character who has died in a really unfair and horrible way and, and, and playing that dramatically and intensely was something that I love about this movie. And, but it did really present itself as the thing that would not work. Um, and 
So I guess we just had the good sense to, to trust our idea and run with it. Well, I guess in, in many senses, you've, you've kind of done, while doing a supernatural slasher, you've also done the kind of restless ghost story too, haven't you? Because in many senses, his, his reaction to being bullied at the New Agey Reform School is what awakens her restless spirit, isn't it? Which, you, even in ghost stories, it's usually the ghost starts leaving clues. It doesn't speak, obviously, but the ghost will leave clues about, oh, what's going on? And then you'll find out the horrible story that me, that tells you why this ghost is haunting you. And in a sense, I think that's what... You've got, it's kind of got double your money with uh, with Moira. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, it's it's definitely his rage. His His emotional intensity is the thing that you know, kind of works as her, uh, her morning alarm clock yeah. to, to, to get up out of that basement and, and start cutting people open. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I guess, you know, that sort of, I don't know, that connection between them, the emotional connection between, you know, first of all, we made the final girl a guy and we made the slasher a girl and they have this incredible emotional intensity. Uh, so we did all the things you're supposed to do. We just flipped it upside down. Yeah, and I think that we've been really leery about using the word ghost or spirit in, you know, promoting the movie and in trying to talk about the movie. Mostly not, not because she's, I mean, clearly she is. Well, she's dead. She's dead, so she clearly is a spirit. But we, we really wanted to emphasize the sort of physicality of her performance and the fact that she is there in the flesh and blood. She is not this sort of ghostly, gauzy sort of, sort of spirit. So, so even though the structure, I think you're totally right. The structure definitely borrows a lot from kind of a classic ghost story structure. We have intentionally sort of avoided using that language because that's, I, I don't think the feel of it is like that. No, no, no. And I actually, I can actually put that in stronger language. Cause I, I actually, I mean, at this point, people don't really know how else to talk about her. So ghost and spirit has, has been in print a lot. And, I will ne that will never come out of my mouth when I talk about this movie. And, and I, I think there's something really interesting at work that people want to say that so much. She is no more or no less back from the dead than Jason Voorhees is, right? Like, Jason died in this, like, tragic circumstance, and now he has come back, and he's killing people, and he's undead. Nobody ever calls Jason Voorhees a ghost. And everybody calls Moira a ghost, and I think it's only because she's a young girl. And there's an association between young girl monsters and something that's ghostliness, even though at no point in this movie is she like phasing through a wall or like, you know, like she's cutting people open and smashing their skulls in just like Jason does. But Candyman they, too. Nobody would call him a ghost. Yeah. You don't call him a ghost. He's, and he's even more ghostly than Moira is. Yeah. And you know, and, and, and Freddy Krueger doesn't even have corporeal form until like sort of, you know, last act moments of being brought into the world. So I think there's something interesting at work in people's impulse to call her a ghost because I think we did, I mean, I guess there's some scenes where you see like a tree and you kind of hear a noise. That's before like, she you got it, comes like, out though. Yeah, but then, yeah, then, then you, you've set to like an hour of like razor blades and, and, yeah. and you know, exploding brains. It is an interesting thing. And I, I, I do agree that it might be a reception to the gender of, of the character. I, I'm not, I mean, it wasn't the gender that got me. It was more the fact that in your storytelling, you, you make it like an accidental invocation which is kind yeah, of like that's exactly what it is yeah. you know yeah. you're, he's calling yeah. on her whether whether i mean ghost is, is is such a loose term anyway and, and you're right i think it'd be if it was just a shorthand from yourself trying to trying to sort of promote the movie you could miss sell it because like you say freddy krueger jason Voorhees are effectively dead right yeah <laughs> but they go around doing very physical killing yeah it's interesting exactly. it's, yeah it's, it, it leads to a sort of an interesting discussion about the metaphysics of, of slashers and 
who's a ghost and what's not, and, you know, how, the, how does the afterlife work in a world where there could be a Jason Voorhees. I mean, just just to just to rewind on where we were with the storytelling, I mean, was 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 in the script writing, was the rules, as it were, of Moira something you played around with a lot, or was that something that was clear from the get-go? Uh, I think we knew from quite early that she, the, the concept was she was, when she hurts herself, it hurts you. That was there from the very start when we first started talking about the story. Because there's a thematic thing there that we wanted to get at, which is that she she was a cutter when she was alive. That was one of the ways she dealt with being bullied and with sort of the isolation, psychic isolation. She felt she was she was a cutter, and uh, she also took on a lot of pain from other people. Pain was whether physical, whether it was emotional. And the idea is now in her sort of reborn phase uh, as a ghost or whatever we're calling her. Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, she can take that pain and redirect it at other people. So we thought it was a cool visual thing where, you know, she'll slash her arm with a razor blade and the same cut will appear on her victim. But it also had a thematic resonance for us. And this, and this girl has been given this power in death to take pain that she had previously been directing at herself and then to direct it at other people. So that, that concept of, of how she hurts people, um, and sort of the metaphysics of how that works, that was in there from the very, from the very start. Some of the other, Bits and pieces of her character we worked with later, but that was that was at its core for sure. Yeah, and, and I think what we developed when it was time to figure out how everything got shot was we made the rule that she was totally physical. So we, we, you know, th there's scenes in the movie where we might cut away from something, and you wonder where she went or what happened. But in our minds, she's physically walking from one place. To the other. In fact, we, there's a couple shots I remember that weren't in, that are not in the final movie where you could see her like walking, like you know, through from one place to the other. Um, there's a there's a specific scene very early on in the once she appears in the film where that where Lincoln first sees her, and I think in in a, in a ghosty movie he would have seen her and then she would have been gone and he would have been saying, oh, what, what happened? But we play the scene in this very odd way where she continues to be in the room while You're he interacts with, in the scene? bathroom, while yeah, he interacts yeah. with some, some, somebody else. And that's something, that's one of those other moments where people are always like, what, uh, what, am I, what am I supposed to, how am I supposed to relate to this scene? Like, shouldn't he have just, like, disappeared? And it's like, no, the whole point is, like, she's physically established, like, in the room, and she's not sort of, like, ghosting in and out through your TV set. <laughs> Well, I mean, must admit, I like. I think, I think, I think you're right. There is maybe a bit of a blind spot to to us as as what we're used to when we're seeing a killer, whether it be supernatural or not, being being the woman as opposed to the mm -hmm. man. Um, especially given that that Lincoln remains a kind of a kind of moral core to the movie, even when the killing starts. He 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 doesn't just go along with the ride. He right. I mean, it's a great. I mean, I wrote it. I, I mean, it goes back to your point about pain. It was. And I don't think this this necessarily spoils it for anyone that that will see in the movie. But when when he when he sort of asks her, you know, what what do you want from me, Moira? And she just says, "Your pain." Mm -hmm. And it's it. And I'm guessing you're implying there that she's fueling herself on the emotional agony he gets through being bullied, and therefore mm -hmm. people will die as a result, kind of thing. Yeah, she feeds she feeds on his anger for sure. That's what brought her back. Well, she wants she wants to have she's a character who desperately wants an emotional connection. That's that's all she wants. She's lonely. She wants an emotional connection, but the only emotions left available to her because of what's happened to her are rage and hatred. 
So if, if she'd been a little bit more, maybe if she'd had like a little bit more therapy, maybe at the, <laughs> at the top of the film when she came back, she could connect to people differently. But the only, the only like neural pathway she's got left is the rage pathway and, and the hate pathway. And that's, so that's what we're running down that pathway. <laughs> Um, so, uh, you, you, like you say, you're going you're to be there for the for the screening and the Q and A. So, what what in particular are you are you looking forward to experience with a fright fest audience for the first time? With this, with our film, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I, here, here's a, here's a, this is always a good test of whether or not it's going to be a good ride with the crowd. Is um, you know, there's a there's a five minute sequence before the, or maybe three and a half. There's a couple minutes before the before the title comes up and when the title comes up it's with an insane black metal track by Merker and if people react positively to hearing some good vicious black metal then I I know we're going to like the movie basically all the best screens so far the title sequence people are like visibly excited by and and making noise during and and that's when we're like okay they're on they're on the wave like this is great yeah Um, there's 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 a scene that I I there's a couple things that are just these you know these awesome violent horror movie payoff moments that you it's just so exciting to see people react to but I don't know how to talk about them without saying no no that's that's there's a shot that involves a horse. I'll just say that. There's okay. a shot that involves a horse, and it's been very satisfying to see people react to that. <laughs> it, yeah. is, it is a very nice cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, that's good. No, I only want you to sell us, sell us the sizzle, not the steak at this point, so people can see it for, the, people can see it for themselves. Um, now, you're, you're right about, I mean, that opening, that opening moment with, with Dad and the school bully, uh, mm-hmm. that, who, who's that track by then at the beginning? So that track is by Merker. She is a one-woman Danish black metal project. Um, so it's her, it's her vocals and her guitar playing. Yeah, she's in like that. a like an elect indie pop band. Like normally, I think they're called X Cops or something. I don't know anything and about that. And then this is her. This is her like s- totally separate project that we came across and really loved. Um, we had a really clear idea of over the credits. We wanted a certain kind. Of black metal song, and we, we went through a couple options, yeah. and that's the, that's the one we stuck with. Yeah, in our in our in our temp in our in our temp music when we had our edit, that credit sequence was a a very early track by Emperor, who are like okay. the okay. sort of legendary preeminent Norwegian black metal band, um, and you know, and, and and it had that vicious yet epic feeling. There was no way we could afford that track. So then we, we went down the spiral of listening to a lot of music. But when we came across, I think I first heard a different track by Merker and I was like, Oh my God, if, if she has a track that like, there was something about the idea of it, it's super heavy, super brutal, sounds amazing. And it's a female vocalist, which felt so it felt relevant like to the fit. film. Yeah. You know, um, so we. Not that you can tell in the sound. You can't I was going to say, I was going to say, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, there. there's a pretty voice. Her vocals sound like a, sound like a butcher knife being dragged across guitar strings. You know? I mean, it's, you, who, who, it doesn't even sound like a human, but I know, and that's important. And, uh, and she's amazing. You know. And, and I'm so excited that we were able to, to put her music in the, in the film. Yeah. Well, I was, was going to say, I mean, I can definitely vouch for your kind of, your, your sense of what people are going to get. Because, I mean, the minute the credit started and that guitar sound and vocals started, I was like, well, I'm in for this ride. That's for sure. Oh, that's great. Yeah. 
you know, so I can, for anyone listening to this who's, who's, who's considering going, then definitely that's part of, and obviously then the smatterings of different sort of styles of kind of old, old alternative sort of indie pop in there as much as there is, because there, there was some interesting, just interested kind of poppy stuff as well as the noise stuff. And I felt for Lincoln with his, his little moment with Caitlin where his playlist he's given her is not Lionel Richie, is it? No. <laughs> yeah, so you're talking about the, the scene where he, he especially makes her a, a, a playlist of music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, she's a cheerleader, and he's playing, you know, what to him is like the, the deepest, heaviest, most important, you know, his version of blues, which, you know, his version of blues sounds like a, you know, like de- demon vomiting slowly on a, on a, on thickening concrete. Yeah. But so there's, you know, there's a moment that was always one of our favorite moments in the script of, He's trying to connect to her with this music that's vi- that's way too brutal for her, or so we would think. And then they have this moment around it, which which feels quite authentic. I'm, and, I'm and happy with that. People often laugh when she says when when it comes on. No, don't spoil it. <laughs> All right, I won't say anything. I won't say anything more. But it's a good moment. We we, we we searched for a long time for the right song for that too. Um, that was a re- in our temp. That was a that was a track by a band called The Body. Um, and I think even before that, when we rehearsed it, uh, I used to use a track by I Hate God, the New Orleans sludge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but because, you know, all of those, all of those bands, the body, I hate God and ultimately Serpentine Path all have us. It's not just that it's heavy or brutal. There's a kind of, uh, plaintive, bluesy, emotional quality to the, to the music and to the vocals. And so that in particular, you know, like, this point of the scene was not like that she that he plays her Slayer, and but she likes Taylor Swift. The point of the scene is that he plays her something incredibly heavy that's also very meaningful. Oh no! She, I, th- I thought I thought the way he articulated why the song's important as a way of sort of explaining his own feelings towards the world. I yeah, thought was was a really neat thing. I mean, if you'd have been a, a music journalist, you'd be quite happy for someone to explain your record like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. Look, you're, talk, you're talking to someone that you know in his early twenties was walking around with a biker jacket with godflesh on the back. So yeah, oh this, man, this, this is right up my street. All this kind of sound. Not to go totally off topic, but aren't they putting out a new album? Didn't or did they just release it? Didn't Justin Broderick just release a new godflesh album? Yeah, it's yeah, to be, yeah. Being awesome. I haven't heard it yet. Is it? Is it out? It is. I've, I must admit, I, I was late to that news because you know I've since since a bit older now, so I don't, I don't follow it as closely. Yeah, um, yeah. But because um, I'm, I'm more, I like. I was just thinking of what you were saying there about why the music, what the music is doing. Because I remember seeing an interview with Dylan from Earth. Yes, and he talks about the notion of finding your own oscillations mm-hmm. amongst that heavy sound. It's like you pick it out yourself, and then you go with whatever your feeling in terms of that noise. It's like it yeah. sounds like a wall of noise, and then you listen for a moment or two. And it almost becomes serene. It's no longer an attack. It's it's actually quite calming. But to mm. the untrained ear, it's yeah. noise. Yeah, for sure. And I, th- and I think you did it. That's what I thought was beautiful about that moment with with Lincoln and Caitlin is that there's us expecting him to just push her away with this music when in fact it's it's seductive and that's really that was really clever. Yeah, and, ho- and hopefully it's it's giving us a hint of something, you know, there's a lot of depth to her character as well that is, you know, only fully explored in, in the fullness of the remaining hour of the film. So I, I think that that scene gives you some, you know, setup for what happens. Also, I want to say it's interesting that you mentioned Earth. Uh, 
another thing that we did when we had originally temp scored our movie when we were editing it was we used a lot of music by Sun. Okay. Also, you know, uh, the, the Stephen O'Malley project, um, yeah. sort of the, the, the thing that evolved from being an earth cover band. And, um, <laughs> and, and originally it was, it, it was this idea I had of in the way that if you think of sort of a standard like Sundance of American indie drama, the way that they use like slide guitar music, like in every movie from that sort of genre, I thought, what, what if we used drone metal as a kind of ongoing, you know, base baseline sound of this movie, baseline sound of Lincoln's head uh, in, in that same way, you know, like sun would be the kind of American slide guitar blues that this, that this movie would channel. <laughs> Ultimately we did, we didn't use exactly that sound. It was, it wasn't propulsive enough. So our, our composer, went in a slightly different but nevertheless heavy direction. But but we were thinking a lot about that kind of open-ended drone metal sounds and how that contributes to the emotional landscape. No, no, no. That's, that's clever clever thinking, really, I think. Especially, especially as, a, as, a, as a soundtrack to horror. I remember, I remember when I first bought uh, Earth 2, Earth's first album, and mm-hmm. I, I just used to use it as a soundtrack for me reading horror books. Oh, yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? It was like it was the perfect thing to have on. <laughs> Um, now, let's remind everybody, when and where can they see the movie then? When and where can people see Some Kind of Hate? So Some Kind of Hate is going to be playing on uh, Saturday, the 29th of August. It's got uh, three screenings. They're all main screen screenings. Uh, the Film 4 screen at 6.15 p.m., the Arrow screen at 8.55 p.m., and the Horror Channel screen at 11.30 p.m. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, as we're Britflix and we usually do British filmmakers, we like to bring... It back to, to British film. So I'd like you to tell me your favorite British horror film, please. Uh, I think we're picking the same one. Yeah, we're yeah. both we're both going to go with Kill List by Ben Wheatley, which we saw together before we made some kind of hate. It's true. At, uh, at Cine Family in our in our neighborhood, and uh, the, the movie's it's an insane combination of every great genre. It, yeah, it's a hitman movie. It's a Wicker Man style cult movie. And it's a sort of really intense, over-the-top domestic drama all mashed together, which actually sounds horrible, but it, it, it is greater than the sum of its parts in a way, and it's just a unique and incredibly strange and affecting movie. And it's amazing how much, uh, how much you can get out of a film where, for, for us, on our side of the pond, we can't understand a single oh word my God, that anybody the in that movie says. Movie. I have no it's idea incomprehensible. <laughs> it may as well have been like unsubtitled, you know, Norwegian. Yeah. But but the but it's so interesting. <laughs> so it's so enthrallingly performed and, and filmed, and that it doesn't matter. Yeah. And then the crazy stuff starts to happen. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a, it's a phenomenal movie. That's amazing that because that, that, yeah because from, from from my point of view, obviously being able to understand every word they say, it's. Um, it's, uh-huh. it's, it's enlightening to see a horror movie unafraid to go down the kind of, let's develop these strong characters who are truly buddies. And in fact, just the notion of a man not wanting to go to work and then revealing later down the road that what their work is, is killing yeah. people for a living. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're kind of looking at them going, you lazy get, you know, you, you go <laughs> work, you, what your wife and kid needs is to go work. And then it's like, oh, that's why he doesn't want to do it, because all he can do is kill. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 for sure. Well, um, look, it's been really great having you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, this is awesome, and thanks for giving us a chance to talk about it. No, no, it was an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. It's...
If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.